Well, those technical indicators of recession, should we just forget about them? Because it seems whenever we see an economy starting to soften, along comes something to show, well, actually, the opposite is happening. So PMIs on Friday were a case in point, showing that in the US and Europe and the UK, services are bouncing back nicely, thank you. But what does that mean for central banks and their interest rate expectations? And how quickly will see inflation trekking down? Well, it's going up in Japan. How long till the Bank of Japan joins everyone else in the rate-hiking cabal? It is Monday, the 24th of April, 2023. It's the morning call from NAB. Good morning. Well, the US dollar was up and down a bit on Friday, but just 0.3% up on the DXY index over the week last week, on a week when there wasn't a huge amount of currency moves. The Aussie dollar did fall 0.8% on Friday. That was because iron ore futures were down 8.3% on Friday. Uh, but that fall for the Aussie dollar, that was after some sharp rises in the middle of the week. So it actually finished fairly flat across the week at 66.9 US cents. Bond yields were up a bit on Friday, up four basis points for 10-year treasuries and 10-year Bunds in Germany. UK 10-year gilts fell one basis point, but they were up nine across the whole week. 10-year treasuries were up only six across the whole week. So movements in bonds uh, pretty much evened out last week as well. So no big moves. And stocks also not showing massive moves. Over the week, the Dow fell 0.2% with a slight rise on Friday. The S&P down 0.1% over the week. So you sort of get the idea. Uh, not a lot going on there. Even the ASX 200, which was down 0.4% on Friday, uh, that is how much it fell over the entire week. Uh, there was some movement in oil. WTI and Brent both up 0.7% on Friday, but Brent was down 5.4% over the week. So uh, let's just look at that slight rise in bond yields on Friday. We have to put some of that down to the PMIs on Friday. Uh, let's look at those first of all then with Tapper Strickland, who joins me from NAB in Sydney. So those numbers uh, weren't bad at all. US manufacturing back over 50 uh, when it was expected to fall from last month's 49.2. So back into growth territory. Services leaping up to 53.7 from 52.6. So things aren't looking too bad in the US, are they? Hey, good morning, Phil. Those global PMIs were very strong and indeed showed a very strong rebound in the services sector of both the US and the European economies. And in the US economy, just look at the overall composite index, and that was at 53.5 versus 51.2 expected and 52.3 previous. A lot of people were looking at recent data in the US and saying, is the US economy slowing? Well, not according to this data. And a lot of the strength is driven by the dominance of that services sector. But even the manufacturing sector, that did tick up into positive Territory. The one caveat with these figures, of course, is that uh, the US ISMs are the more preferred measure and more comprehensive measure of business um, activity from a survey side. Um, so we'll have to wait for those to come out. But an encouraging set of figures. And I guess with two broad implications, and the first implication really is March, and indeed the whole of Q1 was not weak and very few signs of recession. Yeah signals. Um, yeah, exactly. So, and yet, you know, the technical indicators have been saying, you know, recession for a long time. Do we just ignore them now, though? I mean, it's hard because we've got these strong numbers. We've obviously got employment still sticking uh, pretty high as well. So, do we just ignore all those indicators and say a recession is just not going to happen? Uh, I don't think we necessarily ignore them, but it, what it does say is price pressures are pretty entrenched. And so when you look at actually look at the comments, they're all around the kind of inflationary side of it. And I'll just mm. quote one bit from the US PMI, and it was overall output prices rose at the fastest pace for seven months. Firms stated that more accommodative demand conditions allowed them to continue passing through higher interest rates, staff wages, utility bills, and material cost declines. So 
nothing there really to say there has been a material slowing in the rate of inflation. And indeed, for the US Fed to get inflation back down towards 2% target, it may take um, a little bit more in the pipeline there in terms of rate rises. So I think the risk from these figures is if it does show a pretty resilient US economy, then the US Fed may have to go a little bit more than um, perhaps what markets are pricing. And that pricing of cuts further out in the curve, which is based on a downside scenario of a shock, um, maybe that has to be further priced out. And yet we had Patrick Harker from the Fed saying exactly the opposite, you know, that, that perhaps they are near the end date for, for rate hikes, sort of, you know, saying, well, you've got to take into account the lag effect is basically what he was saying, hasn't he? And, you know, so they, they don't want to go too far too fast. Uh, yes, uh, that is definitely one consideration there. And the tightening or prospective tightening in credit and lending conditions uh, that is expected um, should start to weigh on the U.S. economy as the months go forward. But if you still see shines of elevated inflationary pressures, of elevated wages pressures, then that may force some in the FOMC to contemplate another hike on top of the May rate hike that is widely expected. And this week, we do get one really important uh, component of that inflation outlook, and that's the Employment Cost Index, and that's the most comprehensive measure of wages growth. And that will really help inform whether that May rate hike is a peak of the cycle or whether there's going to be another hike thereafter. And just looking at market pricing, they're pricing in a small 13% probability of a follow-up rate hike in June. So Europe also was, uh, well, it was a bit mixed, wasn't it, in that the services index rose from 55 to 56.6%. Manufacturing, though, fell from 47.3 to 45.5. Uh, actually, the, it's lost uh, the, the lowest it's been since May 2020, uh, when, of course, we were coming out of the worst of the uh, the pandemic. Uh, and we saw a big fall in new orders and employment growth, actually the lowest employment growth for, for more than two years as well. And Germany taking that biggest hit. So the um, euro area is 45.5. Germany is down to 44 uh, trailing the euro area a little on services as well. So, yeah, Germany's feeling the hurt. Oh, it definitely is on the manufacturing side, but on the services side, um, still still very strong. And I think that's the key takeaway from the European PMIs and indeed all the global PMIs. We've been talking about the weakness in the manufacturing sector, weakness in goods, and we're talking about a freight recession last week amongst one of the big mm. freight um, transport companies in, in the US. But the services side just remains incredibly r- resilient at 56.6 in Europe versus 54.5 expected and 55.0 previous no real signs of slowing down there but i guess the two worrying things uh, really from the european side is a lot of their activity is concentrated in the services side and manufacturing as you said was was very weak um, so it's not really a balanced growth outlook there and we know the european economy is very dependent on the manufacturing sector so it's unclear to what extent that will start to drag on the wider european economy from here. Uh, and then the second one is Europe doesn't seem to be relatively outperforming the US based on these global PMIs. After all, the European composite was at 54.4 and the US composite was at 53.5. So uh, that kind of narrative of US dollar weakness on the basis of uh, the US economy underperforming uh, isn't playing out in the global PMIs today. Carl, we go backwards and forwards on this, don't we, as to who's in the lead? So. <laughs> So, or who's going to recover the fastest, Europe or the United States? So you reckon now perhaps the US has the edge? Well, it looks like there's no real discernible difference between the two. Um, And I guess that's uh, one interesting aspect of it in terms of those people who are calling a lot of US dollar weakness ahead based on US uh, activity underperforming. Um, We do get an update on Q1 GDP figures for both US and Europe later this week. And so that will no doubt set the um, bad for those kind of 
conversations again. <laughs> All right, okay. Uh, we'll probably go, oh, yeah, no, Europe's definitely in the lead now. Uh, so, uh, but, well, the UK, uh, was a similar story, isn't it? Going back to those PMIs very briefly, uh, services picking up, manufacturing falling down a little bit. Uh, indeed, and I guess it's just to what extent can the services side of the UK economy, indeed the global economy, um, offset the weakness that we are seeing in the manufacturing side? And I guess at the moment it's yet to be seen, but the one underscoring theme within all the PMIs that we have seen is continued input cost pressures and continued selling price pressures. And for as long as those remain, central banks will have to keep rates elevated for longer or indeed contemplate hiking rates further. Right. But retail sales uh, in the UK were telling a very different story, weren't they? So volumes were down 0.9% in March, although uh, there was a significant upward revision for February. So average it down, it's not quite as bad as that, but still that is quite a big fall. Non-food retailers saw volumes fall 1.3%, supposedly because of the bad weather, although that doesn't explain why they also had a 0.8% fall in non-store retailing, which is basically online. I would have thought if it's raining, uh, online sales would go up because you're sort of like sitting in the lounge and you what to do. Uh, you buy something out of boredom. Well, I remember living in the UK a couple of years ago, and uh, if it was wet weather that was impeding the shop, I don't think anyone would shop in, in, in the UK, well, at least not necessarily in the southeast. Um, so it's it's unclear to what extent that wet weather can be blamed for the weaker uh, than expected UK retail sales. Well, was there any in Canada? Because Canada also had a weaker than expected. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So um, maybe that's some sign of monetary um, um, tightening taking effect on the household side. But um, as we've been discussing on this podcast, it's unclear exactly whether the elevated level of retail sales being seen right around the world uh, can actually be, be sustained uh, without getting inflationary pressures down. So it may actually yeah. take um, a no- noticeable easing in the kind of retail sales side in order to get inflationary pressures down on the consumer side. So that sort of says, you know, going back to that recession question, uh, you know, are we, are we going to – I mean, we have to see some sort of weakness – for inflation to come down, so uh, you know maybe we maybe it's not recession, but we're going to have to see a downturn, and that means we're going to have to see more coming out of central banks. So is it enough? You know that that expectation, twenty five basis points next for the Fed. You know, and we've now got some Fed speakers saying that's going to be it, twenty five for the ECB or maybe fifty, uh, and the same story for the Bank of England. And you know, and, and what about the the RBA? Is everyone just going to go for twenty five basis points next oh, time? I think so. As you get um, higher. In your tightening cycle, you want to be a little bit more cautious. Um, after all, you're going to be worried about over-tightening, even though you're seeing resilience in the data and being very mindful of the lags within policy. But if wages are annualizing at rates that are inconsistent with at target inflation and labor markets remain tight, then that probably tells you have to do a little bit more. And that's the reason why I think the US employment cost index is going to be very important in terms of the rates outlook. So what's the Bank of Japan going to do? I mean, they're meeting this week. Maybe it's too late for them to to change this week. But at some point, they're going to have to change. Core inflation on Friday, excluding food and energy, uh, up to 3.8%, which is the highest it's been since 1981, which was 42 years ago. There'll be some people, maybe not many, listening to this podcast who weren't even born then. So uh, tapas, maybe even you weren't born then. I'm not sure. But I mean, at some point they're going to have to change, aren't they? Oh, you'd have to think so. And I think it harks back to some of the stuff that actually came out of the RBA review. And um, in the RBA review, it just noted that there was a lot of discounting of the probability of inflation being sustained at elevated levels. Uh, not due to wages. So if there was widespread input costs um, and you had strong demand, 
no one really thought that would lead to inflation being above target for a prolonged period of time. And this is effectively what the Bank of Japan is facing at the moment. They've been so focused on wages and getting wages growth up to be consistent with inflation being a target over a sustained period of time. They've really dropped the ball in terms of input costs and just the strength of demand uh, within the economy. So no surprises there when you look at relativities, what's going on in the rest of the world, why core CPI at 3.8% year on year is the highest since 1981 and really does suggest they need to get rid of YCC and contemplate uh, hiking rates as well. Um, Media reporting suggests that the Bank of Japan is very reluctant to tweak YCC at this meeting, just given all the banking events that we have seen. So I think you have to look forward to the next meeting in order to see any change. And um, just worth noting, it's government UADA's first uh, chair of, of the meeting, so it'll mm. be interesting to see exactly what kind of stamp he, he puts on the uh, on the meeting itself. Well, look, it's uh, fairly quiet today, isn't it? We get the German IFO survey, the Conference Board Consumer Confidence Read for the United States, and uh, U.S. new home sales. Also, the uh, U.S. house price index tomorrow. Uh, you've mentioned uh, Australian inflation; that that is the big number this week, from seven point eight percent last time to uh, what's it going to be later on in the week? Uh, yeah, so uh, inflation comes out on Wednesday and we expect headline to be at 7.0% year on year and for the core trim mean measure to be 6.6% year on year. Um, we look at it in terms of the, 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 the quarters. So uh, we expect core trim mean inflation to be at 1.3% Q and Q and that result would be a tenth below what the RBA was thinking back in the February SOMP. Um, which was at 1.4. But we think uh, the RBA's forecast back then is fairly dated and the RBA is expecting a lower number based off the monthly CPI indicator. But um, really the print on Wednesday, it's not going to be necessarily very clear cut uh, in terms of what markets expect for, for the RBA and only if it really prints away from consensus. So we think the details are going to be pretty important here. And um, what we do know is that the RBA minutes confirm the RBA is already stretching its 2 to 3% inflation target. Recall Governor Lowe said um, he wanted to get inflation back to 3% by the middle of 2025. And the minutes noted any further lengthening in that term would be inconsistent with, with their mandate. So um, if you've got inflation and some of the details suggesting that inflation um, is only going to get back to 3% by mid-2025 or later, then the RBA probably has to hike and probably has to hike another couple of times in that scenario. So we'll be both looking at the headline and the details. Our central case is the RBA will remain on hold next week, but a print in line with our expectations still sees a fairly elevated risk of the RBA moving again in May. Right, interesting stuff. That makes that a really important read this week, doesn't it? Also, earnings results are going to be pretty important as well coming out of the US. So we've got uh, Alphabet, Microsoft, Spotify, General Electric, McDonald's, uh, all coming up on Tuesday. Coca-Cola and the First Republic Bank later today. An interesting piece in Bloomberg today about just how overvalued they reckon tech stocks are. Tech stocks in the S&P 500 trading at almost 25 times prospective earnings. Now, they were uh, a higher multiple during the pandemic, but of course, they had very low earnings during the pandemic. Go before the pandemic, you know, and we were looking at multiples of, well, 15, 18, maybe. That was about the size of it. Uh, But this is happening while interest rates are going up. There's got to be a big question mark over that, hasn't there? It does. And actually, when you look at the S&P 500 since the beginning of the year, it's risen by about 8%. Um, about 90% mm. of all those gains can be explained by seven mega tech stocks, uh, Microsoft, Alphabet, Apple, Meta, NVIDIA, Amazon, and Tesla. And combined, those um, shares have risen by 29%. Um, so um, I think the mega caps are going to be quite important to watch this week just for overall risk risk sentiment there and if you look at the S&P 500 without the mega cap 7 the S&P 500 is only up about 1 to 2% this year 
just a very big, big divergence. Where is safe to put your money? <laughs> that is the question right now, isn't it? I wish we knew the answer to that one. Anyway, uh, as a mark of respect to the diggers, uh, we are taking a pause tomorrow morning. We will be back on Wednesday. And of course, we will catch up with you, Tapas, sometime soon as well. Thanks for coming on today. Cheers. Thanks, Phil. So I'm Phil Dobby for NAB. I'll see you on Wednesday morning. Thanks for listening. <laughs>